the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today on the program, we'll talk with Denise Harley. She's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a district court decision that is allowing a pregnancy resource center to weigh in on a challenge from Planned Parenthood on a law passed in the state of Arizona with regard to a 24-hour waiting period before being granted an abortion. We'll talk with her about that. We'll also talk with Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You quit everyday endurance moral courage and the quest for purpose he'll join us also in the five o'clock hour first to look at some of the headlines um, moments after former south bend indiana mayor pete Buttigieg told supporters he's ending his presidential campaign on sunday president son uh, president trump rather said it reflected the growing pressure among more moderate democrats to consolidate in order to blunt the rise of progressive senator bernie sanders in a, uh, well, a statement of the obvious. The president tweeted, Pete Buttigieg is out. All of his Super Tuesday votes will uh, go to sleepy Joe Biden. Great timing. This is the real beginning of the Dems taking Bernie out, uh, out of play. No nomination again. Well, Buttigieg withdrawal uh, came just days before voters in 14 states are set to head to the polls on Super Tuesday, which, of course, is tomorrow, where one third of all delegates for the nomination will be at stake. His exit likely will harm frontrunner Sanders by uh, providing a coalescing boost to more moderate candidates as Buttigieg has gone on the offensive against the Vermont senator and sought to appeal to the centrist base of the party. Buttigieg previously had said Sanders was too liberal to be elected. Well, Bernie Sanders' delegate lead over Joe Biden has shrunk from 30 to 8 after Biden's big win in South Carolina in the primary. Florida has recorded its first two positive cases of coronavirus, and Governor Ron DeSantis issued an order on Sunday calling for a public health emergency in the Sunshine State. We'll talk more about that. Uh, later in the program, but it is necessary and appropriate to take action to ensure that COVID-19 remains controlled and that residents and visitors in Florida remain safe and secure, he said in a statement. The infected individuals are residents of Hillsborough and Manatee County, both in Tampa Bay area. Officials say the Hillsborough County resident has a history of traveling to Italy, while the patient in Manatee has no travel history at all. North Korea launched at least one unidentified projectile on Monday, just days after its leader, Kim Jong-un, supervised an artillery drill aimed at testing the combat readiness of some of its units. Apparently, he hasn't had the attention of anyone for long enough. It's time to try to draw some attention. Look at me. Look at me. The Associated Press reported that it was not immediately clear how far the unknown projectile flew. The launch would be the first of its kind in 2020. Kim announced late last year that he is no longer uh, obligated to comply with a self-imposed moratorium on testing nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles. And the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has temporarily blocked the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy, a developing story. A federal judge has ruled that Ken Cuccinelli was unlawfully appointed to lead the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency and therefore lacks authority to give asylum seekers less time to prepare for initial screening interviews. 
And the president's uh, pick of John Radcliffe to lead the intelligence community has garnered some uh, whispers. The U.S. and Taliban have signed a controversial peace deal for Afghanistan, and the Supreme Court will once again consider the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The president has uh, gone nuclear on Democrats at CPAC. You can see the tapes on that if you're interested. House Democrats uh, lost the appeal to force the White House counsel Don McCann to testify. And MSNBC's political pundit Chris Matthews was absent from the air with sexual harassment allegations uh, looming. Now at 64 percent, Sanders has a one in four chance, Biden a one in eight chance of Acquiring the nomination, according to Nate Silver, Buttigieg dropping out may actually increase the likelihood of a contested convention. He was polling at uh, less than 15 percent almost everywhere on Super Tuesday, meaning he was tracking to get very few delegates. But his votes will help other candidates to get over 15 percent and get delegates. As of now, it appears Sanders is leading in all of the Super Tuesday states, with the exception of North Carolina. A uh, detailed breakdown of each candidate uh, can be found uh, in its support to his or her support. Can be found uh, online. And regarding the strategy of Elizabeth Warren, Politico explains their path to victory is likely at a contested convention and not by outright winning a majority of pledged delegates, which they believe no other candidate will achieve either. It will be an interesting uh, convention. And of Newsweek featured an article on Portland police calling them paralyzed by left wing violence from the story. The protest by Antifa in Portland on February 8th organized to counter alleged Ku Klux Klan members who never showed up received little media attention. And why should it in a city where riots have become a banality? Citizens and the local media have understandably become numb. But outsiders, particularly conservatives, responded in disbelief and anger online that a police department in a major American city seemingly permits left wing political violence to become routine, end quote. With an accompanying picture, Thomas Williams wrote Mike Pence and his coronavirus emergency team praying for a solution. We are so screwed, end quote. Of course, that's not the strategy that's being taken, but this was a New York Magazine contributor mocking Mike Pence, uh, Pence rather, for being a man of prayer. From Alexandria De Sanctis, mocking people for praying is not a great look, especially when it clearly isn't mutually exclusive with taking other steps to address the virus. Seth Mandel also responding writes, if your visceral reaction to an image of someone praying is to vomit on Twitter, you need to log off. Robert P. George says, I don't know anything about Mr. Williams, but this photograph and his comment perfectly illustrate the profound division in our culture. It's obvious to some of us that one of the things uh, you do in a crisis is pray. It's obvious to others that praying is worse than foolish. From Rod Dreyer, again writing on the same incident, what offends these people is that government leaders like Pence are making any time at all to ask for God's help. These people genuinely want and an American uh, disaster. I'm confident that if a Democrat were to were in power and had a White House team photographed in prayer while sorting out how to respond, nobody on the left would bat an eye. We are not France. We are America. Our leaders appeal to God and make a point of being seen appealing to God. And in another story, prompting three to walk out, including the actress Adele Hainel, who said she was uh, sexually abused as a child by another director, 
Uh, Roman Polanski won a Best Director in Paris at an awards show. The award apparently led to riots in France. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, Cortez rather says, religious freedom is bigotry. From her bizarre speech before the House, the only times religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it, she said. And then she says, all people need to be treated as holy. She was arguing for government-funded and controlled health care. And a bit of a disconnected line of uh, logic or lack of. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. On this day in history, 2018, at a funeral before an invitation-only crowd of approximately 2,000 in Charlotte, North Carolina, the children of Reverend Billy Graham remember America's pastor as a man devoted to spreading the gospel and one who practiced what he preached. On this day in history, 1836, the Republic of Texas formally declares its independence from Mexico. And on this day in 1877, Republican Rutherford Hayes is declared the winner of the 1876 presidential election over Democrat Samuel Tilden, even though Tilden wins the popular vote. And on this day in history, 1917, Puerto Ricans are granted U.S. citizenship as President Woodrow Wilson signs the Jones-Shafrath Act. 1933, the motion picture King Kong has its world premiere at New York City's Radio City Music Hall and the Roxy. On this day, in 1939, the Massachusetts legislature votes to ratify the Bill of Rights, 147 years after the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution went into effect. Georgia and Connecticut would soon follow. Reverend Billy Graham preaches uh, to an estimated crowd of uh, 25,000 in Baltimore, Maryland, on the 10th of this um, of uh, 81 on this day. And in 1985, the government approves a screening test for AIDS that detects uh, antibodies rather to the virus, allowing possibly contaminated blood to be excluded from the blood supply. And in 1989, on this very day, representatives from the 12 European community nations agreed to ban all production of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, the synthetic compounds blamed for destroying the Earth's ozone layer by the end of the 20th century. And finally, on this day in history, 1995, the Internet search engine website Yahoo is incorporated by founders Jerry Yang and David Bilo. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago, and yet. Well, six are dead in the state of Washington from the coronavirus, 18 presumptively tested positive. Uh, six have died, uh, um, we are, have now been told, uh, in King and Snohomish counties, they presumably uh, tested a positive for 2019 novel coronavirus, officially called COVID-19, in the state of Washington. Uh, at least a dozen schools in western Washington closed uh, today due to a coronavirus concern. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is investigating a coronavirus outbreak at a nursing home in Kirkland, and more than 50 people associated with Life Care Center are showing respiratory symptoms. The city of Kirkland says there are 27 firefighters and two police officers in quarantine due to the coronavirus. We anticipate that this could continue to happen as the situation evolves. We have also been notified that some of our firefighters and quarantine are demonstrating flu-like symptoms, a statement from the city reads. We're working closely with public health, Seattle and King County, and adhering to their testing protocols. The city's fire and police departments remain fully staffed. Four additional coronavirus cases in King County brought the total number of known cases up to 14, including three more deaths. Uh, the four new cases involve a male in his 50s hospitalized at Highline Hospital. No known exposure. He is in stable but critical condition. He has no underlying health 
uh, conditions. A male in his 70s, a resident of Life Change, hospitalized in Evergreen Health in Kirkland. The man had underlying health conditions. Uh, he died on the 1st of um, this month. A female in her 70s, a resident of Life Care, hospitalized in Ever, um, Evergreen Health in Kirkland. The woman had underlying health conditions. She died on the 1st as well. A female in her 80s, a resident of Life Care, was hospitalized at Evergreen Health. She is in critical condition. In addition, a woman in her 80s who was already reported as in critical condition at Evergreen died uh, again on the first of the month. Uh, Washington state health officials announced six people have died and at least 18 people in King and Snohomish. King County Executive Dow um, uh, Constantine says officials are in final negotiations to purchase a motel for people diagnosed with coronavirus who need to be isolated and recover. That should be made available by the end of the week, according to Constantine. Additionally, officials are working to provide modular housing on public properties throughout the county. We have moved uh, to a new stage in the fight to contain the uh, and mitigate this outbreak. King County is aligned and organized behind this common mission with public health, Seattle and King County uh, as uh, our lead agency. Well, it goes on from there. But again, in the state of Washington, six known deaths related to the coronavirus. Uh, in Oregon, a person from Umatilla County, now hospitalized in Walla Walla, Washington, has a presumptive coronavirus diagnosis. Health officials announced this morning the person attended a youth basketball game in Weston Middle School in Weston, Oregon, on Saturday. The person also was an employee of the Wild Horse Resort and Casino. Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation has announced this is not a case where the person traveled to another part of the world and is considered community transmission. Uh, Under federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines, other spectators who may have been in a close environment with the individual would be considered low-risk exposures. The Athena Weston School District has closed the gym for a deep cleaning. The gym is set apart from the main building, uh, which is not considered a health risk. The test on the latest patient was conducted by Washington Public Health Authorities. The person was one of Oregon's pending cases for test. There are three, excuse me, presumptive coronavirus uh, cases in the state of Oregon. When the term presumptive is used by state officials, it means the person has tested positive. The term is dropped when the CDC conducts its own test. The CDC CDC has yet to achieve a negative outcome on its tests. Well, officials from Oregon and Washington are looking into other places the person may have visited. Information about where else the person may have gone will be announced as it's determined, according to officials. People who went to the basketball game can call uh, numbers that have been designated by the state. And the Wild Horse uh, Casino has closed for a deep cleaning. Tribal officials announced gaming areas, convention center, cineplex, children's entertainment center and restaurants are all shut down. All activities. Activities on the reservation have been canceled this week, including the uh, community school, Head Start, daycare, senior center, and the like. The news follows a report uh, Friday evening that a Lake Oswego school district employee who also tested positive, another person in that person's household now has tested positive as well. So we have local cases that are currently being investigated. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden decisively won the South Carolina Democratic primary on Saturday, claiming his first victory of the 2020 race and giving a crucial boost to his struggling campaign ahead of Super Tuesday. Well, the victory tracked with polls indicating that Biden, bowied by support among black voters, had a significant lead in the state for months over Senator Bernie Sanders and others, despite the surging Vermont senator beginning to close the gap after early primary wins that rocketed him to first runner status. 
Sanders uh, will finish second. It was projected uh, projected earlier, and he did, followed by wealthy progressive activist Tom Steyer, who dropped out of the race earlier today, ending his campaigns uh, within a uh, campaign rather within hours of uh, polls closing. Biden had um, banked on his firewall of South Carolina to essentially save his flagging presidential bid as the former uh, primary front runner took the stage at his victory party in Columbus, uh, South Carolina, or rather Columbia, South Carolina. He hugged South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn and thanked him for his recent endorsement, saying, you brought me back. Well, just days ago, the press and the pundits had declared his candidacy dead. Now, thanks to all of you, the vice president said, or the former vice president, the heart of the Democratic Party, we just won and we won big because of you. This is the moment we chose the path forward for our party. This is the moment and it's arrived maybe sooner than anyone guessed it would uh, be. Uh, it's but it's here. The vice former vice president said to supporters in Columbia. Well, Biden will uh, close in on Sanders delegate lead coming out of South Carolina, though Sanders may still be well positioned in a number of delegate rich Super Tuesday states, primarily on the West Coast, while Biden is expected to pick up numbers on in the South. A total of 54 pledged delegates were at stake on Saturday with 87 percent of returns in Biden at 48 That has raised a little bit uh, over the weekend. Sanders had 19.8% and Steyer 11.4%. Behind Steyer was former South Bend um, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's now also stepped aside. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's very much in the race. Uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who has now stepped aside, and Representative Tulsi Gabbard. The win could help Biden reset the race after Sanders racked up victories in New Hampshire, Nevada, and essentially tied the Iowa caucuses with Buttigieg. The performance led to speculation that Sanders may soon be unstoppable on his path to the Democratic nomination, as well as questions over whether Biden could resurrect his campaign after the former frontrunner failed to win any of the first three states on the calendar. Well, Super Tuesday will tell the tale with a bit more clarity. Meanwhile, Marianne Marsh, uh, in speculating about uh, Joe Biden's future, points out that the Joe Biden comeback story will soon run into a math problem. The media is mostly overhyping the Joe Biden comeback story, she says, after the former vice president's resounding victory in South Carolina. But math doesn't lie. Everyone loves a comeback story. Joe Biden finally won something in a presidential race, third try. And I'm glad that he had that day. But I think we're about to learn that um, this is about math. This is not about ideology or anything else. This is a math problem. It, it's a numbers game, and the numbers are decidedly in Bernie Sanders' favor. And Marsh, a Democratic political analyst and former senior advisor to John Kerry, points out Tuesday is the most important day in the 2020 presidential race so far. With 1,357 pledged delegates, 34 percent of uh, the nationwide total up for grabs on what's known as Super Tuesday, the results of these contests will set the course for the rest of the presidential nominating calendar and could make or break several candidates' campaigns. Now, she speculated about all of this before uh, the three campaigns uh, said we are closing up shop. So uh, we'll continue to take a look at what's coming uh, in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour of the program, Denise Harley will join us. She's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a case that's pending uh, that could make a big difference on a 24-hour waiting period in the state of Arizona. And Doug Gaiman will join us. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. That's all coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. 
I've been uh, talking about Marianne Marsh, who uh, wrote about the fact that Joe Biden's comeback story will soon run into a math problem, making the point that it's not about ideology or anything else. This is a math problem for him. It's a numbers game, and the numbers are decidedly in Bernie Sanders' favor. She writes that Tuesday is the most important day of the 2020 presidential race so far, with 1,357 pledged delegates, 34 percent of the nationwide total up for grabs on what's known as Super Tuesday. The results of these contests will set the course for the rest of the presidential nominating calendar and could make or break several candidates' campaign. Fourteen states are set to vote on Super Tuesday, along with the American Samoa and Democrats abroad. The biggest prizes are California and Texas, where Sanders is in the lead. The Golden State's 415 available delegates are by far the largest haul of the primary race. Sanders, uh, who's leading in the polls there, is seeking to run up the score in California to give himself as large a delegate lead coming out of um, Super Tuesday as possible. Real Clear Politics founder Tom Bevan, he said on the... uh the Rundown podcast on Monday that Democrats are petrified Sanders uh, of Sanders becoming the nominee and warned of a nightmare scenario for Democrats heading into Super Tuesday. And of course, the concern is for down ballot to candidates as well. I mean, there's still a lot of scenarios that you can craft about this race, he said on Monday. Maybe Bernie comes out, but he's not so far ahead. And I think in some ways that's almost the nightmare scenario for Democrats, because then there will still be this urge and push by the Democratic establishment to try to take this thing away from Bernie and he's not far enough out in front. Well, honestly, he went on to say, I know the Democratic establishment is petrified of uh, Bernie as the nominee and wants to do anything just to stop him. Well, speaking alongside Marsh, the Republican strategist, David Avella, uh, Bevan told the uh, newsroom panel that the media loves a comeback story. So the narrative of uh, Biden's surge is uh, being overhyped. We'll see about that. Come Super Tuesday tomorrow. Well, as mentioned, Pete Buttigieg ended his presidential campaign on Sunday in an abrupt and surprising pullout that further narrows the field of Democrats less than a month after he declared victory in a contested Iowa caucus. I will do everything in my power to ensure that we have a new Democratic presidential uh, president come January. He told a throng of enthusiastic and emotional supporters in South Bend, Indiana, on Sunday night in a speech marked by an upbeat and forward looking uh, timber. He's, uh, we sent a message uh, to every kid out there wondering if whatever marks them out as different means they are destined to be less than. Well, uh, his um, uh, race uh, numerically didn't seem to have the, the capacity to move forward and be competitive. And uh, I suppose for some of these uh, candidates to ensure their future in the Democratic Party moving forward, this was the thing to do. Also, billionaire and environmentalist uh, activist uh, Tom Steyer, he ended his presidential bid on Saturday after what appeared to be a third place finish in South Carolina's Democratic presidential primary. Steyer made the announcement during his post primary rally in South Carolina. Carolina and told voters he no longer sees a viable path forward to winning the White House. We're disappointed uh, with where we came out. I think we got one or two delegates from congressional districts, which I thank South Carolina for, he said. But I said if I didn't see a path uh, to winning, that I'd suspend my campaign. And honestly, I can't see a path where I can win the presidency. He promised to remain involved in in political issues across the country and said any one of the Democratic candidates for president would be better than President Trump. He also took a shot at Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina. Every Democrat is a million times better than Trump, he added. Trump is a disaster. Lindsey Graham's a disaster. He's a disaster for the people here. Well, the president, not surprisingly, later responded. And finally, um, 
Uh, Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota Democratic Senator Klobuchar, ended her Democratic presidential campaign and said that she will endorse former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, the Klobuchar campaign confirms the senator is flying to Dallas to join Vice President Biden at his rally tonight, where she will suspend her campaign and endorse the vice president. That's a quote from her campaign press secretary. Senator Klobuchar's uh, withdrawal comes a day before the Super Tuesday contest and follows former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg exit from the race and Tom Steyer. The exits of Buttigieg, Steyer and Klobuchar uh, signal the underlying concern party leaders have about the trajectory of the 2020 race, that unless those candidates uh, representing the more moderate end of the spectrum close ranks behind the most viable choice, Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent from Vermont, could steamroll his way to becoming the party's standard bearer in November's election. The decision of these candidates to drop out is seen as an indication of efforts to boost a candidate like Biden as the alternative to Sanders before the latter's delegate lead becomes too great. The announcements followed Biden's landslide victory in South Carolina over Sanders and the rest of the field, a win that was much larger for the former vice president than expected. As for Klobuchar, the senator outlasted several better known and better funded Democrats, thanks to a better than expected third place finish in New Hampshire. But she couldn't turn that into success elsewhere as she struggled to build out a campaign that could compete across the country and had poor showing in the next contest. Even before she got into the race, she was uh, hit with news stories claiming she misrepresented her Senate staff or uh, mistreated her Senate staff, and she had a higher than usual turnover rate in her office. Uh, The senator said she is a tough boss, but countered that she has several longtime employees, including the manager of her presidential campaign. Well, A.B. Stoddard, associated uh, editor and columnist with Real Clear Politics, reported that Democratic Party leaders at the highest levels are trying to come up with ways to stop Senator Bernie Sanders from being nominated for president by the Democratic Party particularly given the fact that he's not technically a Democrat. The establishment is in full-fledged official panic, Stoddard said on Liberty File with Judge Andrew Napolitano. They found themselves now with a strong movement leader who's amassing a lot of support and is marching toward the nomination, she went on to say. It's clear that they're making plans to stop him, but it's going to cause chaos and much more division than the party is suffering from now. Uh, Do these plans involve senior people like former President Bill Clinton, former President Barack Obama, The judge asked his guest. All the conversations are happening at the highest levels, Stoddard reported. And according to The New York Times uh, on Thursday, former President Bill Clinton is is involved in calls with old friends and expressing concern about the party getting wiped out in the general election if Sanders is the standard bearer. The report also cited people close to former President Obama, who is reportedly hesitant to play a role as kingmaker and uh, prefers to be a unifying figure to help heal party divisions once the Democrats settle on a nominee. Stoddard explained that there is panic about a Bernie Sanders nomination and the down-ballot massacre that would follow, saying that some moderate Democratic House and Senate members would be compelled to run against his so-called Democratic Socialist agenda. The theory is that moderate voters who surged to the voting booths in the 2016 midterm elections and voted for Democrats would be alienated by Sanders' proposals like abolishing private health insurance. Well, the major political concern for Democrats is the potential rejection of Sanders. So and that would spill over and also hurt Democrats running for House, Senate and local government positions. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked on Wednesday if she would be comfortable with Sanders as the Democratic presidential nominee. She replied with a one word answer. Yes. Well, Sodder said that she doesn't believe that for a minute in her position, third from the president's. 
a speaker of the House, leader of the party. She has to say that. But behind closed doors, Stoddard said Pelosi is talking with House members about the possibility of a brokered convention when Democrats meet to formally select, uh, meet to formally select their nominee in Milwaukee in July. She must be terrified of becoming the minority leader in the House, observed the judge, again, Andrew Napolitano, referencing the prospect that Sanders' nomination would result in dramatic losses for Democrats in the House. Remember, Pelosi retook the majority and became speaker again after the 2018 midterms because so many voters turned away from President Trump, Stoddard pointed out. In suburban districts, white college-educated women swept the Democrats back into power. Uh, They won't vote for a socialist. They won't vote to have their private insurance taken away, and they won't support Bernie Sanders, and all of the seats would be gone. Well, this idea that Democrats embrace Bernie is a fiction, Stoddard concluded. They have to say it in public, but they're going to uh, do a two-step right now when they're uh, asked about this, uh, despite their efforts behind closed doors to make a plan to slow his momentum. It's uh, interesting to see what will happen over the next several weeks in this um, contest for the nominee. We're going to take a break in just a moment. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, what states vote on Super Tuesday with no Democratic presidential primary candidate mounting an overwhelming lead in the delegate race. In the nation's first primary battle, Super Tuesday is poised to play an even greater role in this uh, nominating contest that has... uh, than it has in several years. And with both California and Texas, the nation's two most populous states holding primaries on the third, around 40 percent of Americans uh, will be voting on Super Tuesday. Now, given the importance of the Super Tuesday primaries and the role these races are going to play in deciding who goes up against President Trump in November in the general election, uh, we'll talk uh, when we return about the uh, states that will be a part of Super Tuesday and some other details that are worth knowing about. Also want to remind you in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Denise Harley, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. A 24 hour waiting period was a law passed in the state of Arizona, but will it stand uh, given the challenge from Planned Parenthood? Well, the recent uh, district court has given standing to a pregnancy resource center there uh, to give them uh, the opportunity Uh, to weigh in on this controversy in the state. Now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court has already weighed in on the subject of a 24-hour waiting period. We'll talk more about that in the 5 o'clock hour, along with Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. Got a couple of guests in the next hour. We'll talk with a senior counsel from Alliance Defending Freedom, Denise Harley, about a pending case involving a pregnancy resource center in Arizona. And we'll talk with Doug Gaiman, author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. And by the way, the foreword is written by Luis Palau. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole book was the foreword by Luis Palau. Anyway, that's coming up. In the next hour, we're talking about Super Tuesday. The states involved, Alabama, the state holds uh, an open primary with 61 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. So, um, you, you know, depending on who gets how many votes, they go to those delegates will go to the candidates. American Samoa, the territory holds an open caucus. So it's not a primary. It's a caucus with the territory awarding 11 delegates, of which six are pledged delegates allocated to the, on the basis of the results of the caucus. Um, There's Arkansas. The state holds an open primary, 36 delegates awarded on a proportional basis. California, that's the one everybody wants, but um, 
Bernie Sanders will most likely take the majority of 494 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. That means if he wins 50 percent, he'll get 50 delegates and so on, or not 50 delegates, but 50 percent of the delegates. Colorado, the state holds a semi-closed primary. That means only Democrats and unaffiliated voters can cast a ballot with the 80 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. There um, are Democrats abroad. This is an open primary in which U.S. citizens living abroad who are members of uh, Democrats abroad can participate with the 17 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. There is the state of Maine with 32 delegates awarded on a proportionate basis. Massachusetts with 114 delegates awarded on a proportional basis. Again, these all primaries. Minnesota, a primary, 91 delegates on a proportional basis. North Carolina, the state holds a semi-closed primary uh, with 122 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. That's also true for Oklahoma, a semi-closed primary, 42 delegates, uh, proportional basis. Tennessee, 73 uh, delegates awarded on a proportional basis, but an open primary, as are the remainder of uh, these states. Texas, they have 261 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. And this is going to be interesting because Texas uh, is could go either way. Uh, in the general election, uh, Utah, the state holds an open primary with 35 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. Vermont, open primary, 24 delegates, a proportional basis. And Virginia, the state holds an open primary, 124 delegates awarded on a proportional basis. And when I'm talking about Texas, I'm thinking it could go either way between Sanders or Biden. So it's going to be a rather interesting contest. So again, you've got 1,357 pledged delegates, 34% of the nationwide total up for grabs. 14 states set to vote on Tuesday, along with American Samoa and Democrats abroad. Um, a Super Tuesday, 14 states uh, uh, involved. Bernie Sanders, the former vice president, uh, Bloomberg. Uh, those are the three primarily to watch, although it's also expected that um, Elizabeth Warren could do better than um, expected, given uh, the status that she has now with uh, others having dropped out. So all of that coming up tomorrow. The uh, the southern states, of course, their uh, polls will close sooner than on the West Coast. So it's expected that Biden will do well early on. Uh, but when the West Coast numbers are counted, which probably won't be until well into Wednesday, uh, perhaps longer in California, for example, uh, then um the senator will probably have a much better showing at that point. So we'll just follow uh, what happens and uh, try to report what we then know. Well, for the third time in under a year, so it could be worse here, the third time in under a year, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking re-election. And once again, the Israeli leader is on the ropes. After two inconclusive elections last year, opinion polls forecast another stalemate. It's a pretty troubling scenario for Netanyahu, who will go on trial on corruption charges just two weeks after the vote on Monday. Well, today, in fact. Well, the election campaign has been especially tumultuous. President Trump launched his long-awaited Mideast plan, a proposal that heavily favored Israel and is uh, seen as an election gift to Netanyahu. The Israeli leader, meanwhile, was forced to drop his bid for immunity from prosecution. And just this week, Israel battled uh, Gaza militants in a two-day round of fighting. Well, the election today is seen as another referendum on Netanyahu, the country's longest-serving prime minister. And once again, the country seems hopelessly divided. With seeming boundless energy, the 70-year-old Netanyahu has taken to the airwaves, hit the campaign trail, 
trail, presenting himself to adoring audiences as a global statesman uniquely qualified to lead the country through its many complicated uh, challenges. In recent weeks, he uh, jetted from the White House to Moscow to bring home a young Israeli woman jailed there on drug charges, flew to Uganda for a meeting with the leader of Sudan, a longtime enemy of the country. We have turned Israel into a world power, a leader uh, in cyber technology, natural gas, water, agriculture, technology, intelligence. He boasted at a recent campaign stop. He uh, took credit for a strong economy. He boasted of his um, close relationship with world leaders, first and foremost, President Trump, while deriding opponent Benny Gantz as a lightweight in a message that uh, has drawn accusations of racism, he also accused Gantz of plotting with Arab lawmakers to oust him. In recent days, Netanyahu and his Likud surrogates spread unfounded allegations, claiming his opponent is corrupt, unstable and susceptible to blackmail from Iran. So all of that has been happening. And the uh, vote was taken today that, of course, the polls are now closed there. And the outcome, if not yet known, will soon be known. But building a coalition is an important part of uh, how you ultimately determine who will uh, be the prime minister of Israel. So they have their own political um, theater going on there right now. Well, meanwhile, a U.S. special envoy and a senior Taliban representative signed an agreement on Saturday in Doha, Qatar, that aims to be the first step to bring peace to Afghanistan and allow U.S. troops to come home. In the seven days leading up to the signing ceremony, violence by all sides in Afghanistan had dropped. Well, that changed today. While there were some attacks, the overall trajectory and levels of violence were reduced drastically. Well, after concluding that the reduction in violence was satisfactory, President Trump gave the green light for Secretary of State Pompeo to accept the deal, which comes more than 18 years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan following the terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001. Secretary Pompeo was present in Doha as U.S. Special Envoy um, and Taliban uh, co-founder and chief negotiators signed the agreement that resulted from more than a year of on-again, off-again talks. Among those also present were the foreign ministers of Turkey and Pakistan. This is a first step in what will be a long, drawn-out process. The Afghan people want peace, having known some form of war since 1979. The Taliban knows it cannot win on the battlefield. The U.S. wants to remain safe from international terrorism. The comprehensive agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban is built on three main points. First, Taliban has agreed that it will not allow al-Qaeda or any other transnational terrorist group to use Afghan soil. To this end, the Taliban agreed to guarantees and enforcement mechanisms to make sure this remains the case. Trust, but verify. Second, the United States and its allies agreed to a timetable to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan. Within 135 days, U.S. forces will drop to 8,600, roughly the number of troops in Afghanistan when the president entered office. About 13,000 U.S. troops are there now. International forces will reduce their troop presence proportionately. Then, if the U.S. assesses that the Taliban is living up to its uh, end of the bargain, the remaining U.S. and international forces will withdraw nine and a half months later. Third, and most importantly, talks with, uh, within Afghanistan between the government and the Taliban will take place on the 10th of this month. This is the most crucial stage in the pr- peace process. It doesn't matter what the U.S. agrees to with the Taliban. What matters most is what the Afghan government agrees to with the Taliban. Now, many questions remain unanswered, and healthy skepticism is the only natural under these circumstances. But ultimately, it's for 
all Afghans, those who support the government in Kabul and those who identify as Taliban to settle their differences. The Afghan government has been fighting a Taliban led insurgency. History shows that most insurgencies are successfully brought to an end through a political settlement. And the hope is that this will be that settlement. Well, after all, the most basic goal of any counterinsurgency campaign is to allow those who have political grievances the ability to express those grievances through a political process rather than through violence. Well, this is the goal of the intra-Afghan talks. Um, uh, The question is, can we trust the Taliban? Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, One thing is certain, the Afghan people have to trust the Taliban. It's the final deal between those two groups that will determine if the process is a success. And we'll certainly uh, continue to follow the process as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then in the second hour, we're going to talk with a senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom and author Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show second hour. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. That's coming up later in this hour. Well, as you know, Alliance Defending Freedom does excellent work all across the country doing just that, defending freedom. Uh, Well, recently they um, fired, uh, filed an amicus brief Uh, The U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona, and there has been an order issue that allows Choices Pregnancy Centers for Greater Phoenix to intervene in the lawsuit, Planned Parenthood Arizona versus uh, Bronovich, uh, to defend a state law ensuring that uh, women have at least 24 hours to reflect and investigate after receiving critical information about abortion and available alternatives. Well, we'll take you back and give you a bit of the backstory here in just a moment. But joining us is uh, Denise Harley. She's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom on this district court uh, decision that has the potential to have an impact uh, elsewhere, elsewhere as well. Denise Harley, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's go back and uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about this situation involving Planned Parenthood Arizona versus Sabronovich uh, and the lawsuit that has been filed. Well, Arizona is one of many states, in fact, a majority of states that has um, a very brief waiting period for abortion, meaning that once a woman gets all the informed consent information about the procedure, its risks and its consequences, then the woman's afforded usually just a one-day waiting period. In, in Arizona, it was 24 hours. And um, yet, Planned Parenthood sued to strike down that law and say that women shouldn't even be afforded that minimal amount of time, but instead abortion be, should be treated as a sort of drop-in surgery. Um, and so... We are delighted that we're going to be able to represent our client Choices Pregnancy Center and to help defend this very important common sense law. Well, it's rather unique that this is uh, taking place um, at this time because this is a a challenge that um, I suppose lots of us have uh, from time to time wished could be uh, put in place and kept in place. Um, the idea behind all of this is to give women an opportunity uh, on this major procedure uh, to avoid the regret that is likely to come or, or certainly might come at some future point because they didn't take sufficient time to uh, contemplate what they were about to uh, to undergo. Tell us what you know about um, 
the mental health implications of rushing into a major procedure like this? Well, abortion is a life-altering decision, and no woman should feel rushed or pressured into it. And the Supreme Court has even acknowledged it's a it's an emotional, intimate decision with psychological consequences, including severe regret and guilt for many women. And so our client at Choices Pregnancy Center offers post-abortion counseling and has seen many, many women mm-hmm. that are suffering from negative mental health outcomes because they did feel like they had no other choice. And what the 24-hour law does is to make sure a woman at least has some time away from the pressure and the environment of the abortion clinic just to sleep on it for at least a night, just to get that breathing space to make this monumental decision. Um, The press release I received pointed out that many medical experts agree that significant non-emergency medical procedures should not be done on a drop-in basis. And women who undergo abortions without adequate time to process the serious consequences um, are more likely to experience negative mental health issues. And those of us who have been involved in the pro-life issue at all have seen the, uh, the fallout from that. Um, as well. Now, you pointed out that the Supreme Court uh, has already upheld a similar law. What is it that Planned Parenthood had hoped to accomplish by challenging this law in Arizona? That's right. The Supreme Court has already upheld a 24-hour waiting period way back in 1992 with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Unfortunately, what the abortion industry is trying now is they're trying to leverage a decision in 2016, if people recall the whole women's health decision, the Hellerstedt which left some vague language in about what's a burden on women's abortion rights. And that breathed some life into the abortion industry. And they have tried to launch this renewed attacks to very common sense regulations around the nation, even like this 24-hour waiting period. Uh, but like you pointed out, when, when would a person ever just walk in and on the same day as getting a consultation undergo a serious invasive medical procedure. This should not be the case for abortion or for any other procedure. Yeah, yeah. Now, what what might we anticipate uh, happening next? Again, what's just happened is the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona has ordered that uh, a Choices Pregnancy Center of the greater Phoenix area can, in fact, intervene in the lawsuit Planned Parenthood Arizona versus uh, Bronovich to defend that state law that uh, requires a 24-hour waiting period. What happens next? We're looking forward to getting some evidence in front of the court. Some of that's going to be expert evidence showing studies and scientific research um, indicating the type of depression, anxiety, uh, even suicide, substance abuse that occurs significantly more so in post-abortive women. And we're also going to share evidence from women that Choices has ministered to who regret their abortion and feel like they didn't have adequate time to reflect on that that information. And so we're hoping that our stories about what actually is best for women will be persuasive in giving the court what it needs to uphold this law. Are you, it's difficult to predict the outcome of these kinds of situations, but are you optimistic in this case? We are. Again, I mean, we feel like we stand on really firm precedent with the 24-hour waiting period, which has already been upheld by the Supreme Court. And it's difficult to imagine when a majority of states have had this type of law in the books for years um, that one district court in Arizona would start to try to unravel that. Um, We find that 
very hard to imagine. And I think it's important to emphasize that I think people assume that a woman has contemplated uh, terminating a pregnancy and she walks in under her own steam and makes a, a calm decision. Very often uh, women are um, rushed. They're pressured into these kinds of decisions. And this 24-hour waiting period has helped to punctuate uh, what could be a, a major life-altering decision, as you described it earlier um, something that at least she has a moment to think about. Uh, she has an opportunity to perhaps learn uh, what other alternatives are available to her. Uh, so we're talking in many cases about women who are being pressured uh, or at least feel pressure to move forward with an abortion. And just to underscore that, for many women, this visit to the abortion clinic is the first time they may even be confirming their pregnancy through a pregnancy test or certainly the first time through an ultrasound they have the opportunity to see their baby in the womb and how far along that baby is and to learn about the gestational age and the development. So all of that significant information a woman is trying to process, and it can't be the case that she walks in before even learning that and already has come to a fully informed decision. Women deserve better than that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it, and we'll certainly continue to watch with great interest. Thanks, Georgine. I appreciate you covering the story. Again, Denise Harley is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom on the district court decision to allow the Pregnancy Resource Center choices to engage in this ongoing uh, lawsuit. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out in his latest book that non-quitters have changed the world. And he asked the question, as you see your time and your joy being spent on something that isn't going the way you planned, or you're walking through a difficult experience that's been thrust upon you, some days you wonder if it's just better to quit. Whether it's now or later, we're all faced with a choice between good and easy, between continuing on through difficulty or giving up. When that day comes, what will you choose? Well, Doug Gaiman observed firsthand how God used one man's relentless perseverance to change a country, and it changed him. In his book, he shares dozens of stories of ordinary people like you and me who did extraordinary things for the kingdom of God because they simply kept going through pain, discouragement, through loss and failure. And he'll teach his readers, you and I, how to cultivate a sort of gritty perseverance that counts the cost and follows through. Become a person of courage and commitment. It'll cost you dearly, but it will change your life forever. I'm talking about his latest book, Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose. And I should mention the foreword is written by Luis Palau. Well, Douglas uh, Gaiman attended uh, Goshen College and Fuller Theological Seminary, completed master's and doctorate degrees in missions at Liberty University in uh, Pensacola, Florida. Since 1994, he served with Globe International, a mission-sending agency based in Pensacola, Florida. He became the director in 2001 and the president in 2004. He loves coaching and mentoring emerging leaders, helping them discover their gifted uh, giftings rather, and life direction. He and his wife, Beth, have uh, ministered in nearly 
60 countries. They have four married children, 11 grandchildren. In addition to Before You Quit, he has authored three books. He loves writing, surfing, cycling, walking, and spending time with his family. But today he's spending some time with us to talk about this important book uh, that at some point in each of our lives will be very relevant, perhaps more so than we'd like to imagine. Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for purpose. Douglas Gaiman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's my privilege and honor. Glad to be with you today. Well, I was thrilled to see that Luis Palau, whom, of course, you know, we here in the Portland metro area claim as our own, uh, provided the forward, I think, giving us a much needed perspective on this notion of uh, enduring and uh, finishing, having the kind of uh, uh, moral courage that you write about in your book. Yes, it was a real honor that he agreed. Of course, being a, a person, an international evangelist, uh, I took a shot at asking him, uh, partly because I've been a member of NGA, the Next Generation Alliance, mm-hmm. for the past 10 years, as well as an organization. And I'm good friends with David Jones, who is uh, sort of the director of the Next Generation Alliance and has worked beside Luis for 40-plus years. I reached out to him and said, do you think Luis would be uh, willing to write the forward of this book? And, and David helped make that happen. Luis was very gracious to do it. So, you know, I'm just blessed that he would do that. And especially, as you probably know, he's battling cancer right now. Yes. He's beating all the odds. Uh, he is known as a man. He, he even talks in his book when he's his doctor asked him about, you know, how, how do you feel about finishing your life? We said, well, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> That he is finishing well yeah. whenever God uh, puts that that uh, rope, that tape up for him to run through. You write in the introduction yes. about uh, when perseverance was first powerfully illustrated to you. It was back in 1981. You were just 26 years old. Your family was nearing the end of a three year internship in Southeast Asia. And you write about a, a gentleman who's uh, referred to as W.C. Can you tell us a bit of his story to give us some perspective on before you quit? Yes. Well, he had, he and his wife and their first child served for a couple of years in Indonesia, and they lost their second child, an infant, uh, as a result of infectious pneumonia. This was back in the 60s. Came home to the United States to grieve through that devastating experience. The church sent them after uh, they had a chance of furlough to India to work with an evangelist who was preaching the gospel in India to tens of thousands, sometimes even more. Uh, that experience change WC's perspective on missions and his own sense of calling. Uh, In the late 70s, he moved back to Southeast Asia with a vision to do the same, to preach the gospel to tens of thousands of people, starting in Thailand. I joined him as a young intern. Uh, I think when I joined 77, I would be 22 years old. Um, And we worked, my wife and I, with him for three years, kind of cut our teeth in missions Uh, during those three years working beside him. And he started out with this massive vision to preach the gospel to the nation of Thailand, which, of course, you know, is 99% Buddhist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was discouraged across the board by Thai leaders, by missionaries who had been in the country. And uh, not to be critical of them, but from their perspective, this just seemed like uh, a ludicrous idea. Oh, he stomped, I remember he stomped back to the hotel where we were staying and kind of vented on me about nobody has any faith in this country. And 
and uh, God's going to do something amazing despite what they think. And, you know, he, he maybe didn't have a, a lot of tact, but he had tenacious vision. Uh, and I, as a young intern, I was like, what do I know? And I'm just, I'm just here to help. We traveled around that country for three years in a beat-up old Ford van that we, my wife affectionately named Lazarus because it kept dying on us, and we kept having to raise it from the dead, and preaching in little villages, little forgotten villages over and over again to measly crowds. I joked that back in those days, it seemed sometimes there were more dogs and chickens in our meeting than human beings. <laughs> Um, and our experience was almost like proving that those naysayers were right. Um, but then in 1981, everything changed uh, for reasons we could only attribute to the sovereignty of God. Uh, I, I really don't know why God does the way does things the way He does. But we had this meeting up in the north of Thailand, north of Chiang Rai, way up in what was what is known as the Golden Triangle. And the meeting exploded. Um, first night, 300 people came. Second night, 600 people came. Then 1,200. Then 2,500. I'm, I'm rounding the numbers, but it was doubling every night. By the ninth night, uh, 20,000 people were on that field. Um, it was a phenomenon. It was, it was like living in the times of Jesus where the crowds just came. They started arriving in, in mid-afternoon during the day. People, somebody hired trucks. They were dumping off piles of people into the grassy field, and they'd sit down in the tropical sun and put newspapers over their head to guard their heads from the heat. The trucks would leave and come back with another load, and that went on for hours while this field filled up with people to hear the gospel. We hadn't done anything differently than we did for three years. We did the same thing on a measly budget staying in a little old abandoned schoolhouse at the edge of that soccer field because there wasn't any other place in the village to stay. And yet God did this amazing thing. He just preached the gospel to them like we had done for innumerable times before, telling, simply telling the stories of Jesus. Our goal was to just tell Bible stories. So we talked about the, we talked about the blind Bartimaeus who came and begged Jesus to make him uh, see again, and the leper who begged Jesus to heal him, and the woman with the issue of blood who reached through the crowds, pressed through the crowds for Jesus to, to touch Jesus, just the hem of his garment. We told those stories, and, and many others, night after night, told the story of the cross, how God sent his son in love who laid his life down for all of us so that our sins could be forgiven, and then it, Jesus died and rose again in three days, and now he's a living Savior, we tell the people, and the same things that he did for, for these people in these stories in the Bible, he can do for you. And people just eagerly pray to receive Christ, and the crowds grew. So that that's what happened, and, and um, I look back on that, and, and I was, you know, was amazed by that, and the impact for me was what I learned from that was that if WC had allowed the lack of encouragement, the naysayers, the lack of finances, the delays, those other meetings that happened over and over again where we were preaching in dusty little places to dogs and chickens, if he had allowed all of that to discourage him and for him to quit before that time we arrived in April of 1991 in that little village in the north of Thailand, if he had quit, he would not have gotten to that date with destiny. He would have missed it. Hmm. And that really deeply impacted me. Like, we need to hang on 
to the vision God gives us and not let anything steal it from us. And, you know, it's like that scripture says, through faith and patience, they inherited the promises. And so that's what I took away from that experience. You, for uh, about 40 years, um, have been uh, leading and mentoring emerging leaders. Uh, and I'm certain this this has a role in shaping your book and just the necessity of the book. But what have you learned about why uh, why people persevere? What drives the kind of perseverance you've just described? An individual who uh, is called by God, has a vision of what God intends to use him to do, and then persists, even though there are plenty of naysayers, uh, to see it through to uh, its completion. Why do people persevere? Yeah. Well, it's it's the same today, uh, Georgine, as it was in, in the Bible times. And Hebrews, the, you know, the, the famous chapter on faith, uh, tells us why Abraham persevered. Why did Noah uh, do that that immensely a great project that saved the world? How did he have the patience and endurance for 120 years to build an ark? This, what amounted probably to his neighbors as a, a monolith of folly. You know, why did he do that? Why did Joseph uh, survive many, many years of betrayal by his brothers, uh, unjustly imprisoned, forgotten in the prison? Uh, it's because of Hebrews says, and, and there's this over and over, the, the writer, um, I believe it was probably Paul, he says they saw things. They looked forward to a city. They were looking for a reward. Mm-hmm. They saw promises. They greeted them from afar. These are different texts in, in Hebrews. They looked for a, a city that was a heavenly city. And what my experience is that people who endure have a vision for something that doesn't yet exist. Um, if it's a personal goal, like they want to lose weight or they want to run a marathon, they have a vision of something that doesn't yet exist in their own experience, but they believe that they can they can achieve it. That's that's just a personal thing. It might be very selfish. Not that it's wrong. It's just that they don't yet have something, and they're going after it because they have a vision. And for for us as Christians, when God gives us a vision to change the world in some way, we we take that on. We see it in in our heart, in our mind's eye, our heart's eye. God's given us this this task and we see something that could the world could be changed in some way as Christians we want to be changed for Christ we want people to, to come to know him to be saved and to walk with Jesus and we envision that happening and and because we grab a hold of that and make that vision our own we are willing to endure even disappointments and delays that and, come along and the way stuff that causes us to suffer we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Douglas Gaiman. Um, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Doug Gaiman. He's the author of Before You Quit, Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose, with a foreword by Luis Palau. Now, let me ask you, um, you write about three kinds of perseverance. Talk a little bit about these three kinds of perseverance that may give us the capacity to consider enduring challenges on a, a much larger scale. Yeah, the, the first kind of perseverance I call everyday endurance. It's the stuff we deal with every day. It's delays. Most of the time, for Americans especially, it's the, we lose time. We're very time-conscious people. And so everyday endurance is something we experience in the loss of time. Long lines at the supermarket, 
being stuck in traffic, uh, somebody's late to an appointment or we're late for, for an appointment because of our own procrastination or because we're being stuck in some way. So that that's the kind of everyday, everyday endurance is the thing that impacts all of us. And how we respond to that, how we manage our way through that is in part a reflection of our trust in the sovereignty of God. The second kind of perseverance is what I call aspirations for greatness, and that has a very human element. It can be personally centered or can be Christ-centered, but it's the idea of envisioning something that doesn't yet exist. I alluded to that earlier in our conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then the third kind of perseverance is what I call moral courage, and this is not voluntary. We don't voluntarily enter into this. This is when a tragedy is thrust upon us, a loss of a loved one, or a great disappointment, something that is just interrupts our life in a big way. Joseph had to have moral courage when he was betrayed by his brothers and sold to the uh, traitors that went to Egypt. And all of us from, from some time in our lives will probably face something fairly serious that will cause us to have moral courage, where we have to either endure and lean in on Jesus and find his help and be able to see our way through it, or, or we may you know, we may lose our faith or turn our back on God and, and uh, in defiance, like Job was tempted to do when he lost so much. You make the point that our culture's self-assurance can be damaging to our ability to persevere. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I say in the book that this a great good, this, this great good that we've all experienced in Western cultures where we have wealth, we have safety, uh, compar- comparatively to much of the world, we have safety and wealth. We have access to health care. Uh, we have come to assume that we are able to solve problems in life. And so, you know, we just money can solve problems and technology can solve our problems. And we become very self-assured in our abilities to solve problems. And so when something happens to us that is beyond our ability to solve, we get lost. Even Tim Keller has commented about that in one of his books, I believe it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says that Western cultures, anthropologists have observed, are the worst at being able to manage difficulty. And I believe that a lot of it is because we have become so accustomed to things going well for us. Talk a little bit about the refining power of perseverance in our journey toward fulfilling God's purpose for our life. Well, I, I think the big, the, big, the big revelation that happens to us when we suffer, uh, when, and that's, this is true for everyday endurance or for an aspiration of greatness or something that we want to achieve takes longer than we think, or moral courage when we're, a, a tragedy is thrust upon us and we have to navigate our way through the grief and find, uh, you know, work through that process and find life and, and health and joy on the other side. Uh, all of those things... What they reveal about us is how badly do we believe in something? How how much do we want something? Um, if I aspire to something great and then it's delayed, I think it's going to take me two years to get there and it takes me three, uh, that will be a test and a revelation to my commitment. Uh, how, how badly do I want this? How long am I willing to plod? Am I willing to adjust my expectations? Or am I going to demand that things are going to happen the way I want? So it, it is a real revelation and a revealing of our character and our expectations. And in those moments when things don't go the way we want, 
that is where our character has the opportunity to grow, because that is where we learn to, to lean in on Jesus Christ and trust Him for our future and be willing to adjust our attitudes, maybe maybe adjust what we're doing, get some help, get some input, um, those kind of responses, too, that can help us on our journey towards what God wants. How important is rest and self-care uh, to our ability to endure and finish what we've started? Yeah, I deal with that in one of the chapters. I, I, I actually identify five. There's probably more. I just chose five that have been meaningful to me of things we can do during difficulty. Uh, in my own experience in difficulty, uh, difficulty reveals things about us. And it, it, what we can tend to do is lean into our weaknesses. So when people are going through difficulty, this is where they can be tempted to uh, get back into addictive habits uh, or succumb to something that's a weakness in their life. And the only way we can resist that is by getting into a, a habit of self-care in some ways. So the five that I identify, one is to read, meaning to, to have an attitude of learning. So reading the Bible, reading the good books from other authors who help us cope, um, just dealing with, with the subject that we're, we're struggling with. So reading is important, and I call that the cognitive function. That's where we are feeding our brains. Uh, it, it's a soulish thing, too, but let's just break it apart for a second. The second uh, exercise that's very important is worship, intimacy with God, and I call that more the intuitive function, where we lean on in on Him on our hearts, on our emotions. We find joy in Him. The Psalms are great for that, and, and I jokingly refer to psalms that are difficult psalms, like 137 talks about the Babylonian captivity and the suffering that the Jews uh, went through. And so that psalm is a psalm of lament. And this is one of the reveals about Western culture. We're not very good at lamenting. The third is create, um, creating, being creative. I, I picked up my guitar when I was going through difficulty. I started some new forms of athletics. Uh, just expressing myself through creativity, I found, was a better way than expressing myself through addictive behaviors. Uh, the fourth is, um, I forget what the fourth is now. Oh, it's uh, divert. <laughs> it's divert. Uh, I, it's similar to what the Bible calls repentance, but I didn't want to use a, a religious word. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people get stuck on that. But it's the idea of be willing, be willing to take a look at your life and change something. If it's not working, it doesn't mean you throw the entire uh, baby out with the bathwater, as we say, but change something. You know, decide that there's something in my life I've got to adjust. Maybe I need to take a Sabbath rest and just go on a long vacation. Maybe I need to adjust something else, but divert from your routines. And then finally, uh, the, the fifth one is, is um, now again, I've got a brain lock. So, But those four... Uh, are really helpful and absolutely, and, and they'll just have to, to help you get through. They'll just have to get the book to get the get the rest of it. Well, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's like Henry Cloud said one time, every now time I get stuck, I have to go back and read one of my stupid books. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the book is titled "Before You Quit: Everyday Endurance, Moral Courage, and the Quest for Purpose." So much more in the book. You you do need to pick it up. It's published by Moody with a forward by Dr. Luis Palau. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a, a delight to be with you, Georgine. Again, Doug Gaiman. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. 
Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with James Merritt. He is author of Character Still Counts. Uh, It is time to restore our lasting values. The book is published by Harvest House. I'm looking forward to that conversation, particularly in the heart of our political season. Does character count? Well, he argues, yes, it still does, not just for those who hold positions of authority, but for all of us. He'll be my guest tomorrow on the program. I should mention on Wednesday, K.J. Ramsey will be my guest. This Too Shall Last is the title of his book, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers. And on Thursday, John Meacham, The Hope of Glory, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross. That is published by Penguin Random House. That's coming up on Thursday. And as expected, on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Now, of course, in the midst of all of that is Super Tuesday. That's, of course, coming up tomorrow. That's uh, where the lion's share of delegates um, are displayed and available to those candidates who can earn them. We'll talk uh, all about that uh, tomorrow. But, of course, Wednesday will be the day when information is known. Now, in the South, the polls will close, at least from our time zone perspective, much earlier than here in the West. California, which is delegate rich, is kind of the prize. It's expected that Joe Biden, the former vice president, will do well in the southern states. Bernie Sanders pretty much in the West. And so it's not going to be altogether clear at least until Wednesday and possibly beyond that. But we'll talk all about Super Tuesday and the outcome, which may whittle down the numbers of the candidates running for the Democrat Party nomination. As you know, three stepped aside um, in the last couple of days, and that has certainly changed the landscape. Others may follow suit following Super Tuesday. So we'll be covering all of that right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments on Wednesday uh, concerning the Louisiana state law that requires doctors performing abortions to have admission privileges at a state-authorized hospital within 30 miles of the abortion center. Now, currently in that state, all doctors at outpatient surgical facilities except abortion centers have to have admitting privileges. So they've carved out an exception. Uh, They have to have admitting privileges at a local hospital, even though the Louisiana abortion industry has a long record of substandard practices that jeopardize the health and safety of women. Now, why would that uh, that carve out be allowed to stand? Well, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments uh, with regard to that carve out. Liberty Council filed an amicus brief at the high court on behalf of Operation Rescue and the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Back in, um, I should say, in the case, June Medical Services, LLC versus Russo, formerly June Medical uh, Services versus Gee. Uh, as Liberty Council's uh, brief outlines, Operation Rescue uncovered numerous instances of grossly unsafe practices at several abortion facilities in the state, including at the Delta Clinic in Baton Rouge, where two women died as the result of botched abortions and countless more were sent to the hospital. Now, had Louisiana's Act 620 been in effect at that time, perhaps the two women might have survived. Well, in June of 2014, Louisiana passed Act 620. It's known as the Unsafe Abortion Protection Act, which requires that every physician who performs or endures, or rather induces an abortion, I wish that was the case, uh, induces an abortion, shall have active admitting privileges at a hospital that is located not further than 30 miles from the location at which the abortion is performed or induced. The Louisiana legislature enacted that bill with the intent to ensure that health and safety of the women of unborn children by guaranteeing these mothers. uh, All doctors have the mandatory competency and by establishing greater continuity of care, uh, their safety would be ensured to the degree that one can ensure safety in an abortion clinic. 
to have admitting privileges, the doctor has has to effectively be an approved practitioner at the hospital, uh, which university uh, universally requires a higher level of background scrutiny. Louisiana's purpose for this credentialing was to prevent the House of Horrors type scenario that rose in the Kermit Gosnell story. Well, several abortion facilities and doctors challenged that law. And while that challenge was pending in the district court, the high court struck down a similar Texas law in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead, finding that the Texas law imposed an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion while bringing um, bringing out no health related benefits and serving no relevant credentialing function. Well, the district court struck down Act 620 in 2017 based on that Supreme Court decision. However, the Court of Appeals upheld the law, saying that it did provide a relevant medical benefit to women in Louisiana and that the law merely operated to require abortionists to conform to the same standards that other medical professionals in Louisiana must satisfy. So this wasn't uh, making an exception of abortionists. It was uh, pulling them into the same standard set of standards that other medical professionals, doctors, practitioners are required to function under in the state of Louisiana. Well, Operation Rescue is a leading pro-life advocacy organization. They've worked for decades to uncover abortion facility misconduct, expose it to the public and bring the offenders to justice. Uh, they represent more than 500,000 churches throughout the world that are deeply concerned about the medical care available to pregnant women and the unsafe conditions that were present in Louisiana prior to the passage of the Louisiana Act 620. Now, interestingly, they have a concrete, specific, uh, legally um, convicted uh, challenge that uh, they can point to in the state of Louisiana. This could have the potential to change everything. So this will be a very important case. And as I mentioned, oral arguments will be heard on Wednesday. But, of course, a decision will not be made most likely until sometime this summer, quite possibly June. Well, Liberty Council's founder and chairman, Matt Staver, said the Unsafe Abortion Protection Act uh, is a reasonable and necessary method of protecting the women and uh, their uh, children who go to these abortion facilities. Well, maybe not the children. After all, it is an abortion facility requiring abortionists to conform to the same standards of care of every other medical professional in the state of Louisiana is common sense and lawful until the day finally comes when unborn children are no longer violently killed by abortion. States must at least offer legislation that protects women from the unsafe, unlawful, grossly negligent and filthy practices that result from abortionists like Kermit Gosnell. Well, Liberty Council is uh, once again, they filed an amicus brief in this case. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on Wednesday. Once again, on uh, win- uh, not Wednesday, on Tuesday, we're going to talk with James Merritt, author of Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. Uh, we'll also cover the events as they're unfolding on Super Tuesday. And again, the polls in the South will close much sooner than the polls in the West. So we won't have any kind of definitive um, answers about who did what, how many delegates go where. Uh, But there is an effort to deprive Bernie Sanders of the Democratic uh, nomination. The defections or withdrawal from the campaign that we saw just over the last few days is at least some evidence of that. But behind the scenes, others are uh, desperately trying to prevent uh, a candidate who is not a Democrat from winning that nomination. So we'll uh, follow all of those political machinations tomorrow. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.